This is Macro Horizons, episode 41, London Calling, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of October 21st. And as the deadline quickly approaches, we're reminded of the new classic, You Brexit, You Bought It. Views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, Ian, have we learned what an orderly Brexit is worth in 10-year yields? Have we learned what an orderly Brexit is? Is probably a better question. But the fact of the matter is that we did see a reasonable backup in rates in this week just passed. In that context, the yield curve steepened out a bit, which we do take a reasonable amount of solace in. We're still waiting for confirmation that the Brexit deal will go through. And to say that it is a significant uncertainty would be an understatement. Our assumption is if Johnson can get the deal through Parliament in London, then Brussels will be content to sign off on it relatively quickly. So as it stands, there is a potential that the Brexit showdown at the end of October is avoided. The verdict is clearly still out in that regard. And as we think about what that all implies for the Treasury market, the fact that 180 in 10-year yield seems to be the new line in the sand is relevant. We have been playing for a period of bearishness during the fourth quarter. Part of that bias has met some satisfaction, if for no other reason than we started to characterize the market as somewhat overbought, closer to 150. That said, still a reasonable chance that we see a two-handle in 10-year yields before this is all done. Does that mean 250 is next up? Doubtful. However, with some of the optimism coming through as it relates to the Fed that's already provided a fair amount of accommodation and presumably will do another 25 basis points at the end of October, this should at some point spur at least a bit more upside in the equity market. Presumably, the weakness reflected in the recent retail sales report is somewhat transitory and not the beginning of a broader shift lower in spending into the holiday season. Although, to be fair, that is a reasonable question, and as a year plays out, we expect that that underlying tension will become, once again, very thematic. The weaker-than-expected manufacturing data also remains a somewhat permanent feature, it appears, of where we are in the cycle. We're standing by the narrative that what started as trade war jitters has finally transitioned into a more durable downturn in expectations. We've yet to see this play out in the employment market, but that'll be the next step and what we will be watching. 
This was the final week for the Fed to speak up in protest, as it were, against what's being priced into the futures market for rate cuts. We didn't see any significant pushback. And so with that context, we're comfortable with assuming another quarter point is done. The big uncertainty that this brings up is what happens in December is the Fed going to be forced into a continuation of the quarter point per meeting cycle? Or will Powell figure out a way to effectively push back and signal a period where policy will be on hold? And of course, as that relates to the shape of the yield curve, will that translate into policy error concerns, which would be another flattening, although a reinversion at this point seems less likely? The flip side would be an extension of some of the bearishness that we have seen could re-steepen the curve even further. We've been watching 20 basis points in twos, tens as an inflection point. Once we get through there, 25 basis points becomes an easy target. Our biggest takeaway from the week really was that rates have backed up a bit. We're nearing an inflection point. And if we are able to see an extension of the bearishness, there is more room for yields to run. So are we Brexiting? Still Brexiting. Well, we do have something that appears to be an agreement between the UK and the EU. Now, it's important to keep in mind that that still needs to be signed off on by the respective parties. And so to say that we're heading for the Brexit might be a bit premature at this point. Nonetheless, the Treasury market responded accordingly by backing up a few basis points. Once we actually have either a confirmation that this deal will go through and or an extension of the deadline, probabilities of either of those we will sidestep offering simply given the ongoing uncertainty associated with the process. But nonetheless, that is going to be very topical as October comes to an end. Wouldn't you say pretty interesting that even though ostensibly a deal didn't even get tens above 180? To be fair, 10-year yields at 175, and we did flirt with that 180 level a couple times, represent a reasonable backup from where we had been and occur at a period where the domestic economic data has continued to show increased signs of softening. And at the end of the day, Brexit was always a second-tier geopolitical risk for the U.S. And by that, I mean it gets a lot of attention. It's obviously highly important for the U.K. and Euro area, but less so for the U.S. So the fact that you see some bearish repricing makes sense, but you know the more important deal, so to speak, has always been the U.S.-China trade war. So the focus on Brexit makes sense. It's just that the spillover is a little bit more muted. Well, and there has been some progress or reportedly some progress on the U.S.-China trade deal. Although, to be fair, it's a very opaque process, to put it diplomatically. And I could very easily see some of the positive headlines being reversed relatively quickly. With a baseline degree of cynicism, I can easily see the White House attempting to push forward or accelerate anything on the trade front simply because of the political intrigue currently playing out in Washington. And more generally, I'd say a channel by which all of this actually impacts financial markets is the FX channel. And bringing it back to Brexit, one of the things I've been wondering is if there is a deal in this lingering risk for the UK and Euro area is removed, 
you know, I'm not an FX guy, but all else equal, I'd imagine that would be slightly euro positive. But at this moment, the ECB is not exactly trying to appreciate the euro, which has the consequence of tighter financial conditions, lower import prices and higher export prices. One of the questions that we had this week, which I thought was pretty interesting, is what are the odds that since now the Fed has already announced the expansion of its balance sheet, that they will choose not to cut rates in October? My baseline assumption is that the October 30th meeting will yield another 25 basis point rate cut, which will be an aggregate of 75 basis points and mirror the episodes that we had in the 90s where there were two distinct times in which the Fed cut by 75 basis points in aggregate in a fine-tuning effort. Yeah, Ian, I totally agree. The fact that they have clearly made this not QE, as we have now joked for what seems like forever, means that even though this is adding reserves to the Fed's balance sheet, it's not truly an accommodative monetary policy action. And John, this is a point you've brought up several times. I think the timing of the announcement also meshes well with this argument, given the fact that they decided not to announce it at the meeting really makes it that much easier to kind of separate these bill purchases from a monetary policy action and put them in a different category of money market plumbing. Yeah, and I think it's a pretty elegant way to disentangle those two is literally not make the announcement on the FOMC date. But more generally, this continues to fit in that framework of high geopolitical uncertainty heightened macroeconomic uncertainty. And in that world, if you're the central bank, you want to maintain flexibility as much as you can. You knew you needed to grow the balance sheet, but you're not entirely convinced whether you have to cut or not. I think at this point, Ian, I'm totally on board with another rate cut at the end of the month. But by maintaining that flexibility, by disconnecting those decisions to some extent, it at least keeps the door open. What will also be very interesting, though, is say they go at the end of October how do they try to characterize the path from there? And that is the biggest risk at this stage. If the Fed does want to deliver another Santa pause, they need to set the market up relatively soon to have that occur. And I've been pondering whether or not that is a bullish re-steepening of the curve, a bearish sell-off in which the market steepens up a bit, or simply another round of the policy air flattening in which the front end sells off in outright terms and 10s and 30s end up with a bid. So fair to say there is at least a small risk of a repeat of last year's December? Yes, that is a very good characterization. The caveat being it's going to be very important where the market is in the run-up to the December meeting. And in that context, you know, one way to think about the Fed trying to achieve this soft landing is if you look at the structure of the curve right now, they're going to lower overnight rates between 1.5 and 1.75. Well, the vast majority of all benchmarks outside of 30s is right in there. 10s are obviously testing or pushing a little bit higher. But what that kind of indicates is some element of comfort of rates staying at that new level for an extended period. The problem, though, is you could easily have a communication misstep that tosses all this around and kind of negates this smooth landing. We've been talking a fair amount about the Fed attempting to orchestrate a soft landing. And with that in mind, I think it's worth noting that three of the key indicators in terms of inflation expectations have struggled to recover at all. And if anything, they're in for a hard landing, it would appear. And by that, I'm simply referencing the lows in 
the University of Michigan's forward inflation expectations indicator, as well as the New York Fed's comparable measure, which hit a record low this week. And of course, break-evens. So on net, despite having two cuts already done, a third very, very likely, expectations are still saying that may not be enough. You know, you either take break-evens literally or you take the surveys literally. But either way, it doesn't seem like it's symmetric around 2% right now. I think that keeps the Fed at a bare minimum with the door open to another cut in December. And this is fascinating considering the fact that there are still increases in core inflation that are expected to trickle through simply as a result of the tariffs, as well as the fact that OER and housing has remained remarkably resilient thus far in the cycle. Do you think break-evens are mispriced and being too low right now? It is the tips market. But we all know that one shouldn't necessarily take break-evens as a literal expectation of a forward inflation outlook. After all, there is a reasonable amount of asymmetry around the risk for inflation. And at the end of the day, it does come down to the Fed's ability to create inflation. If we look historically, the Fed has done a very good job of combating inflation on the upside, very quick to respond with higher rates, very quick to offset any potential for upward pressure. On the downside and offsetting deflation or disinflation, the Fed's track record becomes a lot less flattering. That's the right way to frame it, but that's also why the drop in survey-based measures is so important. One can look through break-evens and be like, oh, tips have different liquidity profile, there's a negative inflation risk premium. But if you're also seeing survey-based measures decline as well, it's a little harder to ignore that signal. And one thing that Williams has talked about before that's kind of been lingering in the background here is, well, what is different this time around? We're closer to the zero lower bound and neutral rates. That might actually make the Fed have to be more aggressive, even in a mid-cycle version, mimicking the 90s. I don't think it's a base case yet that we'll see more than three cuts, but if you don't see break-evens pick up and you continue to see downward pressure on survey-based measures, I have no doubt that the committee is going to come in and try to push all of those back higher. And it does all ultimately circle back to financial conditions. And bearing that in mind, the continued performance of the equity market is pretty impressive, all things considered. Yeah, and generally, I think earnings season is off to a decent start, at least considering the uncertainties that seem to not be able to go away. You've seen several strong prints, and we're back within a few percentage points of all-time highs. And that should translate to a more confident consumer and higher spending, However, that was not the story with September's retail sales figures. Well, the headline retail sales figures did decline month over month. More importantly, within the control group, we saw a flat print. So that means that the three-month moving average is now drifting lower as the third quarter came to an end. It will be very telling to see how those figures shape up in the fourth quarter, especially given the choppy performance of the equity market throughout the summer. And Ian, just for those keeping score at home, Why the focus on the control group? Well, the control group simply backs out aspects of goods consumption that are used to compile real GDP, but originate from a different source. So in the control group, we back out auto sales, gasoline sales, building materials, and vehicle parts. The logic there being by looking at the control group, we can get the best estimate for what is actually going to flow through to real GDP in a given quarter. 
And in keeping in this vein, we also tend to look at the three-month moving average because it more accurately reflects what has occurred in a particular quarter. And turning away from the data and back to the market for a second, dare I say the curve is steeper? The curve has steepened over the course of the last week, week and a half. I wouldn't necessarily call it steeper per se, because a range of 7 to 17 basis points is difficult to truly characterize as the cyclical re-steepening of the curve that we have been looking for. Nonetheless, there is an upward channel in place that we've been tracking. A breach of 20 basis points, which is within the confines of the channel, suggests that we could move as far as 25 basis points by the end of the month. That's simply on the technicals alone. This obviously begs the question, what happens with the Fed? If the Fed does manage to over-deliver on the dovish side, which seems difficult to imagine, frankly, in this environment, then we could see the front end outperform and we get a bit of a bullish re-steepening. The flip side being, if we do have something that resembles resolution with Brexit, some incremental progress on a trade deal with China, and risk assets continue to outperform, I could easily see the 10-year sector inching back at least temporarily into the high 190s. That would also get you a reasonable steepening of the curve. I'd also point out that not this week, but the week after, there's another bearish risk to the market lingering in the background, and that comes from treasury issuance. In the most recent refunding, Treasury is asking all the different primary dealers about their thoughts on the 20-year sector. I certainly am not expecting them to have formally announce anything, but if we are surprised and see TBAC suddenly endorsing an ultra-long or signaling a lot of support for a 20, the market repricing to incorporate expectations for 20-year issuance, that also would provide a little bit of a bearish impulse into the back end. Again, not expecting this to be the case, but I would flag it as a low probability risk event. John, what do you make of the argument that since the Fed has announced that they're going to be buying in the bill sector for the first time since the crisis, and we've seen increased expectations for bill issuance in November, that the Fed is simply monetizing the deficit more directly? I mean, monetizing the deficit always has a certain connotation. That's not directly what they're doing. But basically what they're kind of doing is they're removing excess bill collateral from the market. Sure, you can think about it as them helping to absorb some of this flow. But I'd also make the point that more generally, if you're Treasury, you now know you have a large source of secondary demand coming from the central bank focused in the bill market. Perhaps this helps them push back the timing of the next increase in coupon sizes, rather focusing on the bill market since you know you're kind of issuing into this structural demand. So what does that mean about the 50-year, John? Well, one question lingering in the background is how big would supply have to be to maintain the liquidity of a treasury? Huge. I'd just like to get out there early and say that we should call 50s Manuches. What about 20s? Millennials. In the week ahead, the treasury market will remain focused on the Brexit saga. Regardless of how Saturday's vote turns out, we do anticipate that the on-again, off-again Brexit prospects will ultimately dictate the next 5 to 10 basis points in 10-year yields. 
whether that ends up being a range-reinforcing rally or an incentive to break out of the 175 to 180 range for 10-year yields that we've seen will ultimately be a function of any optimism associated with the deal. Taking a step back, however, a Brexit deal isn't really going to do much to change the overall global economic outlook, if for no other reason than it has been a long time since the goings-on in London really dictated much in terms of global trade and the economy. Nonetheless, the removal of this incremental uncertainty, which has been with us since June of 2016, should be positive for risk assets. And in that context, we would expect a reverse flight quality to put upward pressure on treasury yields. A steeper curve also makes sense in this context. If for no other reason than the Fed has effectively committed to cutting another 25 basis points at the end of this month, the bigger risk then becomes if the Fed is going to push back against the market's expectations for another 25 basis points in December or even more beyond that, then there's a clear communications challenge that Powell will need to step up to meet. Not entirely clear how easily that transition is made within the context of the FOMC statement, an emphasis on being more data-dependent seems the path of least resistance, particularly given that they could use the excuse of falling retail sales and deteriorating manufacturing optimism seen via the regional surveys as well as the ISM national figures. In this context, it's important to keep a few things in mind, some of them which go without saying, but we'll say them anyway. First, the Fed wants to stop cutting rates. Let's face it, they never really wanted to start Second, the domestic fundamentals no longer offer the justification to continue easing any further, but they never really did, even accepting the ISM and retail sales blips. Third, the uncertainties weighing on the global economic outlook, the trade war, Middle East, Europe, etc., haven't been resolved, even if we manage to get through Brexit. And fourth, Powell's reluctance to accept the de facto role as the world central banker has at least ostensibly waned somewhat. Said differently, the Fed is actively managing to forward financial condition expectations rather than simply responding to tightening of said conditions. This does represent a bit of a shift, and it's important to keep in mind as we consider the likelihood that the Fed ultimately gets boxed into a longer campaign of quarter point cuts per meeting. We've reached a point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the days get shorter, the weather gets colder, and the nights get longer, we'll be preparing for our binge watching of The Nightmare Before Christmas. You can binge watch a movie? It gets better every year. Thanks, Tim Burton. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. 
please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.